The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, industrialization, decarbonization, foreign affairs. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. This is great. This is exactly the kind of competition that European and maybe American car makers need to up their EV game and to make their EVs better and to make them cheaper. In 10 years time, in 15 years time, those electric cars that we've seen frozen up, that look, those problems will undoubtedly be dealt with and sorted out. The charging infrastructure will be better, ranges will be better from smaller batteries, solid state may be coming along, which could be a bit, bit of a game changer. The headline in The Economist reads, an influx of Chinese cars is terrifying the West, but it should keep its markets open to cheap, clean vehicles. That's right, listeners. We are on the brink of the great age of the Chinese electric vehicle coming to U.S. roads. Here's what you need to know. Do stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me from London is Simon Wright, industry editor covering cars and new mobility, aerospace, shipping, manufacturing, and the like for The Economist. The article, the series, the package really caught my attention. Are the Chinese coming for the U.S. auto market? Indeed, BYD, a company you've likely have never heard of, is already the largest EV manufacturer in the world. The headline there, Simon, is an influx of Chinese cars is terrifying the West. Is that is that true? Look, the influx is small at the moment, but it should terrify the West because it's going to be large and it's going to be large very, very quickly. One of the things I note in the piece is the way the Chinese car industry operates is at what somebody from Volkswagen called Chinese speed. They do everything just much more quickly than the sort of rest of the car industry, which has been operating at a sedate pace for the last hundred years or so. I see the metaphor, and I understand you discussing it with some of your colleagues, is phones, smartphones on wheels. These are really newfangled, high lithium-ion, sodium battery things with many bells and whistles that don't resemble the internal combustion form factor so much. Well, well, well that is really interesting. Look, almost everything about the car industry is changing at the same time, which is why the uh, sort of legacy car industry, the, the established industry, has so much to worry about. Not, um, electrification is one thing. Electrification is just a way of changing the, uh, the, 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 the powertrain of cars. You know, much of the rest of the car is the same, except for the fact that the other thing that's really changing, and perhaps almost more importantly than the EV revolution, is the fact that cars are, in the future, brands and cars are going to be differentiated and defined by the experience of driving. And that experience of driving itself is something that will be uh, controlled by software. So it's the fact that we have the software is going to define how cars are in the future is, is almost almost as momentous as the EV revolution. Let's, you know, we could go on to mention other things about how the way cars are sort of bought and sold and all, all kinds of different things. The whole industry is is in an enormous upheaval at the moment. Simon, I was getting pretty whimsical this year for the year 1989 because, and, and this is related, I promise I'm coming back to it, is the DK225 
index in Japan is within a stone's throw of its fateful 1989 high. I mean, this is shortly after the Japanese bought uh, Rockefeller Center in Manhattan. I mean, this is a few years after that infamous movie Gung Ho. You might remember with Michael Keaton, the Japanese were coming for our auto industry. I mean, you had Sony, Panasonic, all these Japanese products everywhere taking over the world, the Walkman, the Discman. And it's striking to go back and think about 35 years. Not only did that not come to pass, but that was an epic asset bubble. You had a loss several decades. And I'm struck by if we just take the example of consumer electronics, of which China is clearly king, it spent 50 years dominating you know, the provisioning of these electronics and these parts, the absence of kind of Japanese brands in the house, where the iPhone is there, the smartphones are there, the Koreans have these things, and they've completely taken over where Japanese brands used to be. And I have friends who wonk out about the automobile industry, and they're saying, Yes, you might look at it right now as the U.S. and the Japanese kind of dominating this industry and the Koreans to a certain extent, but don't get too comfortable because the Chinese can disrupt it rather easily and and they kind of already have started. Well, I think you're absolutely right to draw those comparisons. If you think about the uh, Japanese and then in turn the Koreans, they um, started from a very low base and now have a significant portion of the global um, car market. And in the U.S., both those firms are sort of a... Are both established there as well as, as well as Kia. What's interesting though is it took them an awfully long time to do that. It took them decades. And again, I think with the sort of this idea of Chinese speed, given other factors that we might we might like talk about later on, the Chinese could do this much much more quickly than the Chi- the, the Japanese and the Koreans. How is that? I mean, there's one stat that really stood out in your in your package in the essay. Just five years ago, China shipped only a quarter as many cars as Japan, then the world's biggest exporter. This week, all right, let's timestamp it as the beginning of 2024, the Chinese industry claimed to have exported over 5 million cars, exceeding the Japanese total. China's biggest car maker, BYD, which stands for Build Your Dream, sold a half a million electric vehicles in the fourth quarter, leaving Tesla in the dust. By 2030, China could double its share of the global market to a third, ending the dominance of the West's national champions, especially in Europe. I'm imagining you're thinking of the likes of Volkswagen and, and Daimler, Benz and, and the like. I mean, that's, that 2030 is not too far away. Well, that's exactly right. And the, 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 the reasons are that the Chinese cars are both pretty good and pretty cheap. And though the reason that is, is because, you know, although this has happened at China's speed, the roots of this were laid down a long while ago by the Chinese government, who took a bit of a gamble that electrification was the way to go. The Chinese always had this idea of being a global power in car making. Countries like to have a big car industry. It's sort of part of national pride. It's part of sort of national virility to have a car industry. Steel is the same. It's the, 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 a national airline. And in order to have a car industry, it took the gamble to go down the route of electrification. It realised that, that that China couldn't compete with the sort of intricacies of the internal combustion engine. The companies that had a hundred years or so experience of doing that were, 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 were way too far ahead. By creating a market for EVs in their own country, and also by creating a supply chain, not least for batteries, which are the most important bit of the, or the most expensive and important bit of the uh, of, of an electric car, 
it has created this this, this in, uh, internal um, domestic market, a huge domestic market, and that domestic market, you know, it can now think about exporting those both cheap and good electric cars. I mean, there was a time when electric uh, Chinese cars were terrible. The way the history of how the uh, the uh, the industry grew is instructive. To get into China, the Western car makers um, had to form joint ventures with uh, domestic car makers. They did so. Those domestic car makers just took all the money from the joint ventures, which was pouring in. Those joint ventures had 90% of the Chinese market, and they made their own cars that just weren't very good. That has all completely changed. And that's because with electrification, there have come these new companies that have looked to uh, Western car makers, Tesla in particular, as a benchmark. And so they're making good cars and they're making very, very cheap cars. And that combination, I think, will take them a long way in the global market. But what about goodwill? I'm thinking about it here in the States and to a certain extent, you know, in Canada and in Europe and you go to Norway, Tesla is clearly dominant. And the starting price, I think, on the cheapest Model 3 is what, $38,000, $39,000. You're telling me that BYD can offer a car out of the lot for $12,000. Of course, there are differences, the battery, the staying power, the bells and whistles. But you're saying in the essay uh, and, and in the reporting that you've done that where we can increasingly take for granted a global charging network, you won't have to have these gigantic 500-mile solid-state batteries or whatever they are. You can increasingly treat these things like smartphones. And again, 2024, you can walk into a Walgreens, a CVS, and buy a really cheap tablet or smartphone manufactured in some coastal city in China, and it's kind of almost like a disposable. You understand that it is what it is. Uh, but there is, again, zero name recognition in the United States. Again, that is an excellent point. Look, the Chinese won't have it all their own way. There are a variety of things that, that could hold the Chinese back. Certainly in the US, the incredibly high tariffs um, are, are, are sort of going to keep the Chinese out for a long while. They may be able to sneak in via the back door, via Mexico. But in Europe, where tariffs are much lower, you're absolutely, absolutely right. They're turning up in force. Now, they have to get some sort of brand recognition. But where they're playing in the market, in the sort of mass market... Brands are not quite as sort of uh, as important as they are right at the very top. It's you know if you're buying a BMW or a Mercedes, you're doing so because you want that badge on the front of your car because it says something about you as a person. You know it says I've I've arrived. I'm, but at the mass market, people are much less brand loyal. So I think you know that's not going to be an enormous drawback because they're much more inclined to look at price as as much as brand. Is there an analogy, for example, if I can show up and if to the extent I'm still interested in a uh, DVD player or flat screen TV, I could still to this day buy an RCA uh, brand or Thompson, you know, electronics things. And there's a Chinese cheap electronics manufacturer behind that that will ride that legacy goodwill maybe from the 1980s and sell me a dirt cheap TV. Why isn't that happening? I understand Geely Automotive, a Chinese auto manufacturer, controls Volvo and Polestar, why wouldn't somebody like a BYD want to backwards integrate into the brand recognition of a multinational that might have a tired nameplate? I'm thinking of a Mazda or others out there, and it's hard to break into Japan, and I understand there's cross-ownership, but haven't they done this with white goods? You're buying a GE washing machine to the extent they still make them. That's High Air or somebody else in China making these white goods and, and using a kind of a hundred-year-old nameplate. If I understand your question, you're asking me, do you think the BYD should buy a brand? I mean, because... Well, why start it from scratch? Why come out of the gate and have to be someone like a, um, 
you know, a Huawei phone, which suddenly became stigmatized in the United States, whereas iPhones are decidedly manufactured in China and the supply chain is there in, in Asia, but it's not looked at as a scary Chinese brand. Well, that's a great question. Look, I mean, the thing that would prevent me from buy, buying a BYD is that it stands for Build Your Dreams and they have Build Your Dreams written on the back of the car. And that would, that would be a deal breaker for me, I'm afraid. I don't think I should tolerate that. But you're right. Other companies are going down that route. Um, SAIC, which is one of the state-owned brands, bought MG, which is a sort of a, a well-known old British band, brand. And the MG is now the biggest selling Chinese EV in Europe. So, that, that, you know, that's perfectly possible. Um, that said, I think with in BYD case, BYD's case, they're going to do as much as they can to build a brand just by providing cheap, good cars. And I think, I think they have a, a, a chance of doing that, just as Toyota and Kia have done. Simon, how valuable is the imprimatur of the Wizard of Omaha, Warren Buffett, having a chunk of BYD, Hong Kong-listed stock? I mean, to get that seal of approval alongside other blue chips in the past, you know, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, you see the press releases, like, or you see the, the breathless articles, you know, Buffett-backed BYD. That certainly gives it a look that I think... Uh, he was convinced behind the scenes, even though he's been selling a chunk of his stake. That's absolutely true. And I can't remember exactly when he did so. But BYD has only really sort of come to prominence in the last few years. The other really interesting thing is that the Chinese domestic market only really took off in the last three years itself anyway. Before that, it was still sort of it was growing, but it was growing slowly. And the people who bought cars were mainly sort of fleets or governments. And they were sort of they were sort of forced to. But what what has happened in the last three years is that price has come down to the extent that when people go out to buy a car, it's not like the, the sort of Tesla early adopters who were sort of green environmentalists. That's right. The people who are going out to buy a car, an electric car in China, it's people who just want a car. An electric car in China will cost as much, maybe less or not much more than an internal combustion engine car. They're just buying a car. And because China also, um, you know, took the opportunity early on to invest very heavily in charging infrastructure, which is one of the other reasons that people don't buy an electric car, costs sure. one, charging infrastructure is the other. There's just no reason not to buy an electric car in China. We had the transport secretary, the U.S. transport secretary, Pete Buttigieg, on the show in December. And we were discussing kind of the chicken or egg problem. And maybe you have a perspective on this. Are you waiting for a killer app if you're a prospective auto buyer in the developed world, you know, the U.S., Western Europe? Are you waiting for a, a gigantic capacity battery or is it the charging infrastructure that's kind of holding you back? If most people are overwhelmingly driving these less than 100 miles a day, plugging them at home, if you don't have the range anxiety, then maybe, just maybe a BYD could be a really compelling value proposition. If you could buy it for half the price of a Tesla tariffs included, they don't have to hold out for this killer app battery technology that Toyota and others are saying you know, we're five, six years off from having a 700-mile range battery. I think you're absolutely right. I think people are not entirely clear about how much they drive. I mean, look, I think in London or something, I think the average is something like 30 miles a week. If you've got a 300-mile range battery, well, look, you know, how often do you have to charge it? I mean, charging electric cars would be different in that you would always top it up whenever you, got, whenever you have the opportunity. But that you're exactly right. The thing that holds everyone back, in the U.S., if you look at China, you know, uptake of EVs and hybrids is something like um, 42% of sales now. In Europe, I think it's something like 25%. In, in the US, it's something like 10%. But I think the US started down this journey a little bit later than everyone else. I know it's slowed down as well recently, and there's a lot of discussion about that. But look, I think it's still growing, and I think the direction of travel is very, very clear. 
we will be all electric at some point in the future. And that's what you've got to look at. But at the moment, I really think that is the cost is the main drawback for the adoption of, uh, of electric vehicles. And were cheap Chinese vehicles to be available in the States, um, I, I think that would almost certainly speed up adoption. But, you know, one of the difficulties here is do you want, does the rest of the world want its roads full of Chinese vehicles? Um, there are, you know, there are a variety of reasons why you might not want that. One, it threatens your own domestic industries. And secondly, there's the possibility of, you know, all the data and all the sensors on the car feeding back information to the Chinese government. So there's a security imp implication as well. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are joined by Simon Wright. He is the autos industry editor covering, I guess, in addition to autos, new mobility, aerospace, shipping, manufacturing, the like. A wonderful article. An influx of Chinese cars is terrifying the West. Uh, how much of that is justified what you were discussing right now the panopticon state I and mean, clearly huawei has felt it uh tiktok has felt it here in the united states i think it's owned by ByteDance. that you have uh, imagine the kinds of information that could be sent back on a gigantic smartphone on wheels and omnipresent and sending back technology and all sorts of chips in it really a computer on wheels even if it costs 12 to fifteen thousand or twenty thousand dollars after tariffs that the United States combined with protectionism and the, the, the you know, Detroit labor stance of this administration, at least, would be loath to, to grease the skids to that. Look, I genuinely don't know the answer to that. It, it, it's, it's unclear to me. What I would say is if that China's only way of gathering information from the West is to send out cars with sensors, I, I'm not sure that's, that, that, that's the ideal way of doing it. But I suppose every little, little, little bit helps. I think what you need to think about here is it's really more about sort of deindustrialization, and I think that's the that that's the real threat because it is genuinely genuinely a threat to Europe's uh, car makers who will almost certainly lose market share to the Chinese, maybe in due course to America's America's car makers. Uh, indeed, in Europe, the European Commission has launched a an investigation into the subsidies that the Chinese car makers have received from the government over the years to see if they're unfair and um, with a view to raising tariffs. The Inflation Reduction Act pretty much keeps the Chinese bay for the time being. But there are a couple of things to consider here. In Europe, what you need to think about is do any of Europeans car makers really want tariffs to increase? Hmm. That's very unclear to me. Right, there are several reasons why European car makers may, might, might not want increased tariffs. Perhaps the most important is that they still have very big businesses in China, even though they're under threat there from the Chinese domestic firms and their market share has been falling. The Chinese will absolutely retaliate in some way. Secondly, they export uh, cars from China to the rest of the world. They build cars in China and those would be uh, subject to tariffs if they came into the European Union. And thirdly, in a way, this would encourage the thing that will really help the Chinese to expand much more quickly. And that's localization of manufacturing. If there's big, if there's big tariffs, the Chinese are much more likely to, to uh, build factories in the West to supply from within. I mean, just before Christmas, BYD announced its first European factory, which is, is going to build in Hungary, which will start producing cars in a few years' time. 
Um, and it's clear that other Chinese car makers will do exactly the same. In America, as I say, the terms of the Inflation Reduction Act, pretty much, you know, uh, high tariffs and those terms which hand out subsidies only to uh, cars that with enough uh, locally made content, you would think would keep the Chinese out. But on the other hand, their share of the Mexican market has gone from a handful of very few years ago to 20% now. Wait, the Chinese have a 20% share of Mexico? In the Mexican car market. Yes, they do. And they, they overwhelmingly source and build locally? No, they don't, but they will do. And when they do that, those vehicles will probably be NAFTA compliant and will probably be able to be exported to the US. So, And just to explain for our listeners, this is why you have so many Japanese and European companies building, building in the Rust Belt, the Korean companies, the ones that are there. You know, it used to be taboo. You don't buy, don't buy American, buy Japanese. That's been mooted over 30 years because so many of these vehicles are built in Ohio and South Carolina. I visited the Subaru factory in Indiana. It employs thousands of Indianans, right? You bet. Look, the Chinese are already there. Geely, which own Volvo, has a factory in Charleston and South Carolina, I think it is. Um, and they also intend at some point to start building their Polestar, which is their uh, EV-only range of cars um it also also there so look the the, the chinese are always there to an extent and so uh, but there is a back door via mexico so the idea that you, you're going to keep these cars at bay forever i think it, it is the wrong one it was the same with the japanese and, and 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 the koreans the idea was perhaps you know we can we can we can stop these cars but why would you want to do that well look i mean if you're a domestic car maker you might want to do that another argument might be this is great. This is exactly the kind of competition that European and maybe American car makers need to up their EV game and to make their EVs better and to make them cheaper. But Simon, you know, you also discussed in this a, a bit of like a Walmart-like peace dividend. If you can, it would be such a joy if you could buy a competent, passable electric vehicle for $15,000 and not have to pay $38,000. That is money that you could spend on other things. I mean, it's a it's the Walmart effect. We know if Walmart, if it were a country, would be what the fifth largest trading partner of China. And that, even though that is a lot of manufacturing jobs have left the United States, they've gone to Mexico, they've gone to Vietnam and other places, textiles in Bangladesh, you do get that dividend, that discount dividend. It has freed up your money for other things that otherwise would have been hogged by the price of a car. You could discuss the flat screen TV or a laptop as well. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, the car is, you know, the second biggest purchase people make other than their house. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a lot of money. In any industry, no industry should be frightened of competition. It's what keeps everyone honest. I mean, so I think that's, the, that, that, that's one of the reasons we should be welcoming this rather than, rather than being fearful. Hold that thought. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, including and especially Apple and Spotify. The link, you can find them all there, is fullderadio.com. Again, fullderadio.com. We have our special live show with NPR's Steve Inskeep on January 31st at the University of Richmond School of Business. It is sold out, but follow us on the socials for waitlist information. You can follow me on all social media at handle full d radio and dm me if you too would like to carry this show on your air if you're just joining us my guest is simon wright he is industry editor with the economist he's joining us from london uh he covers cars and new mobility aerospace i love this package uh that you had a big hand in on the uh you know the, the chinese are coming an influx of chinese cars is terrifying the West. And I have to ask you, it's the same meaning of life question I have when 
We discuss, you know, you could have emerging market investors on. We've had a, a, a correspondent from CNN who used to be the head of the Beijing bureau. He was there during the Tiananmen crackdown. Where does the Chinese command and control public sector end and the private sector begin? So it's one thing to say that maybe BYD becomes a national champion in China, the way Volkswagen is the national champion in Germany. But how do we know that they have real access to a market cost of capital, that the subsidies, it isn't just Beijing putting its huge thumb on the scale to force the inevitability of them being the dominant EV player across the planet. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, look, we don't know that. And we do know that in the past that the, the Chinese government has absolutely tilted that scale with cheap capital, cheap equity, that sort of thing. But look, those are the sort of things that can't go on forever. If you look at the Chinese car companies now, the other thing is to, to say that, I mean, BYD makes a profit. Some of the um, old state-owned enterprises make a profit, but most of the new um, car makers don't. But these new car makers probably will. They're the ones that do, you should be really sort of looking at, uh, as well as BYD, you should be looking at the Xpengs of this world, the Neos and the Lee Auto. They're all rather like um, Elon Musk and Tesla. They were all founded by tech billionaires and they put tech first. And that's the other thing that we started discussing at, at the beginning of this is that the tech inside the car is so much more important these days and it is particularly important in China. One, what you've got to remember is that the typical new car buyer in the, in, in, in the West is in his 50s. I think something like 55 in Europe. It's, they're, they're, they're old. In China, they're 20 years younger, if not more. And those young Chinese, they demand um, a, you know, they live their lives on their phones and they demand a seamless digital experience in their car. And that's what you're getting with, the, with these Chinese cars. A little bit, Tesla does it as well. Um, but the legacy car makers are a long way behind. They just don't, software is so important. And transforming your company from a company that was sort of been obsessed with the internal combustion engine for 100 years and tinkering with that and making that as good as possible to one that becomes a software company is an incredibly hard transformation. I mean, to say nothing of the supply chain, you cover these things. The bailout of the auto industry uh, during the financial crisis here, there were dozens and dozens of companies that made wing nuts and washers and everything across the Rust Belt. And it's not like GM had a hard time going through quick rinse bankruptcy because you can't just you can't just snap your fingers overnight and say, okay, we are an EV platform. You have uh, you have decades of knowledge, institutional knowledge, memory, labor unions, uh, carburetors, from that to fuel injection to pistons, and uh, you you can't afford to offend all these people and be as nimble as kind of an Elon Musk, maybe coming out of nowhere. Uh, in the throes of a crisis and saying, I can start from scratch. I'm a digital native, if you will. You're absolutely right. The, the, the other side of the coin of the sort of success of the Chinese is if you look like the sort of failure of the uh, legacy industry. I mean, it's called a legacy industry exactly because it has the, all the legacies that you, you talked about. It is having, to, rather than starting with a clean piece of paper, like a Tesla, like a Neo, these companies are having to transform from ones where the internal combustion engine uh, governs it, working at a sedate pace where new models come every sort of seven years to one that works much more quickly and one where software is right at the centre of what they do. And it's a painful transition. It's a difficult transition. And it's a transition that they're finding hard to manage. I mean, in order to compete, they're going to have to do so. As I say earlier, everything's changing at once. And these companies are having to manage this trans transformation to making electric vehicles, to being software companies, 
to selling services as well as vehicles it's all change and if you're an established car maker that's a that's an incredibly incredibly hard transformation to make it's made particularly hard because they're at the moment the car companies the established car companies are very very profitable and they're making those profits from internal combustion engine cars. Gigantic. I mean, they sell gigantic profit center pickup trucks and everything. If anything, it's far away from, you know, EV. Well, exactly. Well, I mean, except that, the you know, the pickups are being electrified as well, um, partly because companies like Rivian coming along and, you know, threatening to sort of take away the golden goose of the American car companies. I mean, they make pretty much all their money from, from pickups. So they're incredibly profitable vehicles. But to manage that transition, they have to do all those things at the same time. Um, as I say, fearfully complicated to manage that transition. And we're seeing that at the moment, um, which, you know, one reason why Tesla has succeeded and BYD to a similar, a similar extent is they're incredibly vertically integrated. They do pretty much everything. So they hang on to all the profits, they control everything, they control the supply chains, all, all those sort of things. Exactly what the established industry can't do. They're trying to be as much like Tesla as they possibly can. They're, they're making changes. But it's, as I say, it's incredibly difficult. And it's incredibly difficult when they're making so much money. Well, Simon, where where is your head on the Japanese? I think specifically Toyota which in the late 90s really invested in hybrid technology. I have a 2012 Camry hybrid, and that was the aspirational standard of the day. But I've noticed Japan has been really slow walking the whole EV transition. The management of Toyota has been saying that we just don't, we believe it's overrated. We think hybrid technology is going to be needed as a bridge for far longer with range anxiety. You're seeing reports in the United States in the cold snap this week of all these Teslas being frozen at charging stations. I mean, the range plummets and the door handles freeze. And the Japanese kind of feel vindicated and that Toyota has, has seen a resurgence of hybrid sales. But I'm thinking of them and I'm thinking of orphan brands. Nobody talks about Mazda here anymore. Nobody talks about Nissan. To a lesser extent, Honda. I mean, what was the last time anybody discussed an Acura or an Infiniti? Lexus, it feels like something that only grandparents drive. Those were at the cutting edge of their, of their day. Again, you're absolutely right. Look, I think in terms of Toyota, they made a gamble that, in fact, hydrogen was going to be the fuel of the future. And so they, they, they took their eye off the pure EVs. And it's only very recently they've come round to the idea that they will have to make battery-powered cars. In terms of <coughs> hybrids, which is somewhere where, as you rightly point out, Toyota have a, have a particular speciality, I genuinely think that hybrids will be a transitional uh, technology. In 10 years' time, in 15 years' time, those electric cars that we've seen frozen up, that look, those problems will undoubtedly be dealt with and sorted out. The charging infrastructure will be better. Ranges will be better from smaller batteries. You know, um, solid state may be coming along, which could be a bit, bit of a game changer. So I, I wouldn't worry too much about that, but I would worry if I was leaning too heavily on hybrids for the long term, because the point will come where it just doesn't make sense to have a car with two engines. And what about the resurgent national champion of Korea, Hyundai, which used to be a punchline, as you know, here in the United States? I mean, Samsung was a punchline in the late in the late 80s and early 90s. Now you have many people with Samsung phones and the LCD TVs are considered state of the art. You see Hyundai and, and it's, I guess, sister brand Kia. I think it owns a majority or minority stake. They seem that they're that they have the verve to compete. These are desirable cars. They they don't stay on the lots very long. I mean, the Koreans definitely want to have a dog in this fight. I think they do. Look, the Koreans came along doing pretty much what the Chinese are doing, with making good cars at, at, at good prices. 
And indeed, um, if you look at the Hyundai and Kia electric vehicles, they're very good. They, you know, they're, they're, they're right up the top of the tree for the legacy car uh, companies in the segments where they operate. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't write them off at all um, uh, at this stage. And they still have, do have a really big chunk of the global market. So being an incumbent does have advantages. Uh, I know I talked about brands earlier. Those brands, particularly for the premium end of the market, they still do have some meaning. And it's not too late for the legacy car makers to fight back, but they don't have much time left. The next thing is that can be coming up in a couple of years' time, we'll see the launch of much more dedicated electric vehicle platforms. At the moment, a lot of the electric vehicles from legacy players are on um, platforms that would have been internal yeah, platforms. Simon, they seem, they seem half-hearted. They seem half-baked. That they were done with an overwhelming deference to the ICE, you know, the internal combustion legacy. It wasn't from scratch. As much as they want to say we have a whole different electrification and automation unit, it's kind of like, you know, I would say like a, a, a chicken restaurant trying to say we're coming out with a hamburger or a veggie burger. I, I think half-baked is a little bit unfair, but not, 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 not entirely unfair. You're absolutely right that they took their eye off the ball. I don't think they'd be making EVs in the quantity they are, nor the world would be doing so if Tesla hadn't come along. Tesla were a big influence on the Chinese EV, EV makers I mentioned earlier. And you're absolutely right that it's sort of governments, it's subsidies and it's bans that have been pushing the EV. But I think now the car companies have, have, have accepted that that's the future and they're going to have to make that transition. But as I explained, it's hard, it's expensive and it's going to be a, a difficult transition to make from selling an incredibly profitable internal combustion engine car. saying, no, don't buy that. Buy this EV from us that, that, that we sell at a loss. And that's the transition they're having to make. And so it's, 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 it's a hard job for them. And I don't think they'll all survive it. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. If you are just joining us, my guest is Simon Wright. He is the industry editor covering cars and new mobility, aerospace, shipping, manufacturing, and the like for The Economist, where he has been uh, since 1989. Earlier, we discussed the Nikkei 225's fateful high in 1989 and how much the world has changed when the Japanese were thought to have taken over the world and you know, we're they're talking about Discman and Walkman and Toyota. And I'd like to bring it back, I guess, in the 15 minutes or so we have left with you to Tesla, the giant in the United States. The CEO is a very mercurial Elon Musk. He wants to take more control of the company, more voting control of the company. He has Twitter. He has SpaceX. You talk about a key man risk. He's almost the very personification of, of key man risk. But this is the dominant player. This is the one that had broken, had pierced the trillion dollar market capitalization briefly, the one that kept uh, Detroit's big two and a half honest. I can't imagine that he's going to take this onslaught from BYD and Geely and the like just kind of sitting down, but it's going to cost him. Well, look, we've already seen the sort of price wars that went on in China last year when, uh, you know, uh, Tesla was uh, fighting to uh, retain and grow market share by by cutting prices. So I don't suppose he will take it down. But I, I mean, I have to say that um, and calling him um, Mercurial is one of the sort of politer ways of describing Elon Musk. Um, I, I have to, I have to say um, that he's always welcomed competition. He, you know, he's uh, 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 as far as I know, he he thinks that he thinks like I do that that's the thing that sort of keeps keeps the industry moving. But look, you talked about Tesla's market capitalization. A lot of that is inexplicable. And a lot of that is based on things other than cars that Tesla will, might be presumed to be doing in the future. 
I, I think that the, the risk with Elon Musk is not just that. It's just that he spreads himself too thin. I mean, look, his, uh, his um, decision to buy Twitter, now called X, you have to sort of question that. And even now, look, he's, um, he's uh, talking sure. about his control of Tesla um, and how uh, he needs to be in a firmer grip on Tesla in order for him to develop all these other things. In a sense, you know, it's almost a little bit like, you know, forcing the hand of those investors in Tesla by saying, you know, I might develop the AI outside of Tesla if I don't have this, the, the, the level of control that I need of the company. But look, Tesla has been a remarkable story. We shouldn't downplay that, whatever we think of Elon Musk. Um, not only did he kickstart the EV business in general, in China, as we talked about earlier, it was those Chinese tech billionaires looked at Tesla and benchmarked their companies against Tesla. And they're the ones I think we're going to see, you know, who do the really uh, sort of exciting things with their EVs in the, in the future. So let's not downplay his achievements. So Tesla and the Chinese and the Chinese automakers, are they frenemies right now? I mean, that's a market clearly Tesla wants to be in. Uh, the sourcing, the engineering, some of the shared technology. You know, it's not a its not a zero-sum thing. You can't just say, I'm avoiding China altogether. I do want to have an aspirational... I mean, there are millionaires there who might want to buy a, you know, Model X, uh, Model S. I need the technology. I need the manufacturing know-how. Uh, you bet. Look, Tesla sells very well in China. Um, you, you're, you're absolutely right, Tesla. The Giga Shanghai, I think, I think it might be their biggest factory. In the world, they want to expand it. There is a rumor that the Chinese government aren't keen on that because they, you know, they're, they're thinking that Tesla is actually something of a threat to their car makers at the time. But let 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 let's see where that goes. But you're absolutely right that Tesla relies on the uh, Chinese supply chain in China for its vehicles. It, you know, Chinese batteries. So it's uh, you're 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 absolutely right that China is a key part of well, what Tesla's doing. What is that? Uh, you know, the contract manufacturer, original equipment manufacturer model. That I thought China, this the turn of the century, and it was only added to the World Trade Organization, I believe, in 2001, and just the remarkable strides it's made since then, and especially if you go back 40 or 50 years and consider all the people it's brought out of poverty and the uh, factrification and industrialization of cities and the skylines, wasn't it content for a long while to just be the mercenary maker of the parts of the guts uh, to provision these Western brands? I don't think it bothers many people that their iPhone is made in China, but it's designed in Cupertino, California. Why, if BYD started as a battery, you know, as a kind of battery tradition company, why aren't they content to just really export just the guts of that? Why must they be out there as a full value-added brand? Do you see what I'm saying? Well, that's a good question. I, I guess we'd have to ask BYD um, th th that question themselves. But I think everyone wants to move up the value chain. Everyone wants to do, well, do everything. BYD, for, as I said, like Tesla, is incredibly vertically integrated. So it's just a question of doing, doing more with the technology you have and just exploiting that, te that technology better. I mean, you're absolutely right about China. I first visited China, I would say, 35 years ago rather than 40 years ago. And it was an extraordinary place. There was hardly any cars to be seen on the streets. And what they were were beaten up old sort of Toyotas that were plying their <laughs> right. taxis. And the rest the rest was just um, thousands and thousands of bicycles. Um, and it, it, So it's, it's come an extraordinary way in a very short distance. And China's speed is not just, you know, um, something that is uh, part of its currency. It's part of the whole China. Everything happens very, very quickly there. 
I'm going to read something from your essay on the influx of Chinese vehicles terrifying the West. You write, and, and this, is, this is really the rub. In 2022, approximately 18% of new cars sold around the world were electric. In 2035, the EU will ban the sale of new cars with internal combustion engines. Though firms are retaining their workers as they switch to making EVs, the process is less labor-intensive. Much as the first China shock was responsible for less than a fifth of total manufacturing job losses occurring at the time, many of which were attributable to welcome technological advances, so too there is a danger of confusing disruption caused by the shift to EVs with that caused by Chinese production of them. And this is where I want you to try to game out the upcoming tension. I don't you know who's going to be in power after 2024, but it's certainly been political red meat to inveigh against the Chinese to, to run against them. It's something that united kind of both wings of the parties here in the United States. But this is enormously up for grab. On the one hand, and with the Inflation Reduction Act and other policies, you want to decarbonize rapidly and you want to espouse anybody that can help you scale that. There's enormous, enormous work to be done and we're already well behind the curve. On the other hand, you don't want this kind of industrial invasion, especially with AI and everything else, giving rise to another round of populism. This has been very expensive for the Democrats. The Republicans, Donald Trump, has pounced on that and populism and the loss of jobs. And you saw how he invaded against the Chinese and promised to bring back jobs in 2016. Where Where is this going to head? There's there's really a tension. And you say it in your essay. There's an inevitability, like you can't lament the loss of the milkman or the bank teller. A lot of this stuff is going to move to automotion, automation and uh, the jobs are going to move abroad. But you want to decarbonize, but you also don't want to get the rug pulled out from a significant chunk of your economy. Well, I, I agree entirely about that. But I, I, just to go back on something I was talking about earlier, the only way that the Chinese can really, really succeed, and this is, you have to look back at the Koreans and the Japanese, they only really started to succeed when they localised production in the countries where they wanted to sell and the regions where they wanted to sell. The Chinese have to do that as well. And by doing that, they bring with them jobs. Um, you know, I think everyone's delighted now even in the US or anywhere, if uh, the, 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 the Japanese were to open another car plant, because it would mean exactly that. And I think we'll see the, the same thing with the Chinese sometime in the future. There'll be actually the rollout of electric vehicles will bring jobs. You see more of a susant of kind of, I don't know, there's something red meat protectionist, almost borderline xenophobic. I'd encourage you to go back and, and it, look at the Ron Howard movie Gung Ho in 1986. You know, Western Pennsylvania auto plan is acquired by a Japanese company. Brokering auto worker Hunt Stevenson faces the tricky challenge of mediating the assimilation of two clashing corporate cultures. I mean, I, I see that happening with solar. There was a there was a company in Virginia that showed up and said, we, we want to do the next balsa wood manufacturing facility. But when you talk about almost kind of borderline uh, uh, national security technology, and it clashes with the UAW, we think these should be unionized jobs. That is a tall, tall order. I, look, none of this is going to be easy and none of it is going to be particularly smooth. I think we would look back at, our, at the fear of the Japanese as sort of laughable now. But I suppose that the, the Japanese don't really have you know eyes on taking over the world whereas the Chinese possibly do so that's why we might be slightly more sort of wary about this but I don't think I don't think allowing in Chinese cars is going to make the difference 
know, in the few minutes we have left with you, Simon, I want to ask, China has not had a true, true hard landing, a true uh, deep recession and economic calamity, at least. You know, I, I, I think of the world financial crisis, uh, uh, the emerging market crises in the late 90s. That didn't really super affect China. We saw China inoculate itself with a lot of infrastructure building coming out of 2008 and 2009. What happens when and if they face that reckoning? What happens to these national champions? What happens to these subsidies? Already, you're reading quite a bit about the collapse of, of the property bubble there, the banking bubble. Uh, consumers have, haven't been this tight-fisted in the longest time. If, if the government there, if Beijing can't be as profligate uh, with, you know, say, national champion EV makers, then what? Well, that's a very that's a very good question. Uh, look, if you or I could predict when the crash in China was coming, we we'd be we'd be we'd be rich men. If it's coming, who who really knows what form it would take if it happens? It's very hard to sort of predict those things. But what you can say is that clearly, these car makers can't rely on subsidies and state bailouts forever. They need to be able to stand on their own two feet. And I think the the signs are that you know the the, the state owned car companies that used to be lost maker for years, many of them make a profit now. Uh, BYD makes a profit. Lee Auto is probably going to make a profit this year. You can see Xpeng and Neo making profits. But also, you know, there is a hundred odd domestic car makers in China, the names of which we've never heard of and we never will because they will disappear. And there's almost certainly going to be consolidation in the Chinese car industry as well at some point soon. I mean, the government has always had its eye on this happening anyway and has tried to sort of tried to sort of engineer it without success up to now. But I think I think we'll see that happening. But I think that'll only make the Chinese car industry stronger in, in a, if there's sort of you know, a dozen strong car firms all making over a million cars a year, which is one of the predictions um, uh, of uh, UBS, a bank in my piece, that'll actually help rather than sort of hinder the Chinese. So it's possible that sort of if the car industry is looking to sort of insulate itself from economic knocks in the future, uh, consolidation may be the way and that that, that actually could help in, in, in the short term. Are there Chinese-built EVs on the road today in the United States, or is that so prohibitive from a kind of a tariffs perspective? I do see the one-off Polestar at a Hertz rental car every now and then. I mean, is that manufactured in the States, abroad? No, I think they're made in China, but I think Polestar is intending to start manufacturing at the Volvo factory in, in South Carolina. So I, there may be one or two, but I think there'll be few and far between. When are we going to see the BYDs here? I mean, can they manufacture them? Can they manufacture them in the states? I mean, how do you how do you pull that off and make a profit? They could make them in Mexico and they could export mm. them to the US. Um, that that would be the way I would suspect they they might come in. But look, if they broke ground on a factory today, it would be two or three years before it was up and running, and it would be some time after that before it was producing cars at volume. So I think it's I think it's it's um, a while away yet. But in Europe, in London, you see plenty of Chinese-made electric cars. MGs, very, very common. Uh, Polestars. Uh, I've seen a, some BYDs around here. In fact, I was walking through central London just yesterday, <laughs> and there's a BYD showroom in Mayfair, just down from the Bentley showroom. So, they, you know, they're, they're there and they're ready. Wow. Simon Wright covers autos, the industry editor covering cars and new mobility for The Economist, joining us from London. I love the package you wrote on influx of Chinese cars is terrifying the West, but it should keep its markets open to cheap, clean vehicles. I love how you have this is kind of a, you know, 
debris field in space, a bunch of asteroids about to crash into the planet. But just saying, you know, relax and enjoy the disruption, if you will, uh, to a certain extent. Thank you, sir, for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan and Case Graham at Notterly. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and all fine podcatchers. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. And a shout out to our radio listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ, across the great Commonwealth. You can follow on all social media at handle fulldradio. And catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week.